This morning's scripture reading is from Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, so that it was com- and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Inside of the announcement sheet, you'll find um, an outline that you can use as we go through the, the message this morning. We're going to be looking three stories of Jesus on the water, and there might be some things that you might want to, uh, to jot down and uh, to think about later. And as we normally do at this time, we're going to begin our study of God's Word with prayer. Father, we acknowledge that we are not the people that we should be most of the time, if any of the time. But you have given us such a beautiful glimpse of of your glory in Christ that it whets our, our appetite, Father, to to be conformed and transformed more into His likeness every day. And to this end, Father, we, we not only uh, o- obey where we know to obey and, and, and to worship You, Father, but also to think deeply and to study these words that have been given to us through Your Spirit and to study them in such a way that, that we have a, a broader, deeper more profound vision of who you are in Christ and how we are to live and how we are to to respond and to react in this world around us and the the, the kind of people that you're growing us up to be. And to this end, Father, we're asking for strength and we're asking for courage and for insight, but we're also asking, Father, for eyes to be able to see and ears to be able to hear and for a heart that is filled with love. We, we pray, Father, that as we study these passages, that these words will, will resonate in us, and that we will find truth, and not just truth to believe, but truth to cling to. And this, Father, is what we pray for in the name of Jesus, and all the church said. The loss of hope is a tragic experience in life. I have a friend that uh, has experienced a a great deal of of profound disappointment in life and the loss of hope. He believes that it comes from four different areas. The first one would be unrewarded obedience. I confess to you 
that I don't care much for televangelists. And I'm not talking about uh, guys that preach on television. I'm talking about the ones that, that pervert the gospel by telling you that if you'll send in your money and if you obey, that God is going to give you the life that you've always dreamed of. It's that health, wealth, prosperity gospel. It is a perversion of the gospel at a lot of levels. But the one that distresses me the most when I think about it is that when a human being buys into that perversion of the gospel and it doesn't come true, then there's something wrong with that person. Or worse yet, they begin to believe that there's something wrong with God. A second place is unrelenting hardship. It's not just one big blow that lands on you, but it's a series of blows. Not just a shot to the head, but it's a lot of blows to the body. And it goes on and on and on. And you wonder at some point, is it ever going to stop? It just seems like every day is a series of relentless setbacks. We say every once in a while in the staff meetings especially when we're praying uh, the first part of our staff meetings we go for about an hour and we're just talking about the people we need to be praying for and we spend that time in prayer and when there are times when it seems like there are folks that it's just one setback after another it seems relentless and we just we look at each other and we say you know it just seems like the hits just keep coming right a third one is unexpected heartbreak Never forget the phone call I received uh, about a decade ago, one Sunday night after our evening assembly. Son had been in a, in a traffic accident. The mother and the father at the hospital, devastated. Get to the hospital, the doctors say that there is absolutely no hope. He's brain dead. He's on life support. That's the only thing that's keeping him alive. We've been honest and truthful in a gentle way with the family, but that's, that's the scope of it. And to spend the next several hours into the past the midnight hour talking and praying with that family and the mom begging me to tell her that her son would return to her, which he would not. A couple of days ago, people are having a good time thinking that uh, they're at a safe place, enjoying food, enjoying music, and the next thing you know, 128 people dead. Unexpected heartbreak. The fourth one, he says, is unfulfilled hope. That life is supposed to work a certain way, and it doesn't seem to be working out that way. You're single when you thought you would be married. You want children, but it doesn't seem like there are any children coming your way. And so it's in those moments of unrewarded obedience and unrelenting hardship and unexpected heartbreak and unfulfilled hope that we find ourselves, metaphorically, sitting at our desk and we open up a drawer and we realize that we have a lot of contracts with God that we have signed, but God didn't. The world, and we learn this, 
From the very beginning of the Bible, in the third chapter of Genesis, we are told that the world is going to be a place of thorns and thistles. That the world is going to be a fallen place. And as a fallen place, it can drag the hope right out of you. That the disappointments can begin to mount up and, and, and accumulate in such a way that it drags the hope for a different kind of a life right out of you. I was reading uh, recently and came across uh, this interview. Josh Wedden, you may know his name. He's the, the, the screenwriter and the producer of movies like Toy Story. Just a, a regular guy living in America these days. And in an interview with Entertainment Weekly, he was asked if he believed, because the, 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 the movies he puts together, there's always hope. There's always hope. He was asked, do you believe that hope and the human race go together, that human beings are getting better, that human beings are getting smarter. And I want to read to you verbatim the quote from Josh Whedon about this very subject as we find it in this magazine. He says, I think we're actually becoming stupider and more petty. What's going on in this country and many countries is beyond depressing. It's terrifying. Sometimes I have to remember who I'm talking to. I'll say something about how terrible things are and meaningless and the world is headed toward destruction and war and apocalypse. And at one point my daughter goes, hey, I'm eight years old. She doesn't want to hear that stuff. But I can't believe anybody thinks we're going to make it before we destroy the planet. I honestly think it's inevitable. I have no hope. I want to be wrong more than anything. I hate to say it. It's the line from Lord of the Rings, I give hope to men, I keep none for myself. End of quote. The big question is, where do we find hope in this world? Where do we find hope? Where do we find hope in this world? It's here that the Bible begins to address this subject and begin to direct our minds in a certain direction. Look at Romans chapter 15, verse 13. It's up on the, the screen here. Paul writes, May the God of what, church? Hope fill you with all joy and all peace. It's not just, it's not just a prayer that God's going to do that, but he continues the thought, As you trust in what? Him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you in your Bible to circle the words as you trust in Him. And then another one, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. On Him we have set our hope that He will continue to deliver us. There are other scriptures. Uh, one in particular is, Colossians, <clears throat> is found in Colossians chapter 1. We talk a lot, especially guys like me, we talk a lot about our identity in Christ. And one of the things that we don't talk nearly enough about, something I'm very guilty of, is the fact that it's not just who we are in Christ, but who Christ is in us. And so Paul writes to the church in Colossae, I think it's probably the theme verse of that entire book, he says it is about, about being, having Christ in you, which is the hope of glory. The hope. One of the great biblical truths about hope that's greater than these bad contracts that we have in that desk drawer someplace is this. Hope blossoms as we move closer to Jesus. 
Hope blossoms as we move toward Him, which brings us to these three encounters of Jesus out on the water, specifically the Sea of Galilee. Story 1 is found in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Jesus has moved His home from Nazareth to Capernaum. It's there on the northern uh, coast of the Sea of Galilee. One day he's out there teaching and the people are crowding around him and he's standing there on the side of, a, you know, there on the beach and the people are, are listening and, and, and more intent on getting close to him because of his words and because of, uh, of how he is attractive and beautiful and winsome to them. And they're crowding and crowding and crowding as they're trying to listen and trying to get close to him and he notices that he's about ankle deep in the water. He notices that there's this fellow by the name of Peter that he sort of knows and has heard about, has a boat nearby. He gets into the boat and teaches from the the water this crowd, this massive crowd from Capernaum from all over in the villages that have come to hear him. And when he's done, he tells Peter, who is a fisherman by trade, owns his own business, tells Peter to put out into the deep water and to let down the nets. Uh, Peter's not all that interested because he's been doing it all night. You know, the way that you fish, even to this day, commercially in the Sea of Galilee, you do it at night so that the fish don't see the nets. During the day, the the nets are going to be seen. The fish are going to swim away. And he's been doing it all night. It's his profession. He's tired. They haven't caught anything. It's not the optimal time to, to, to fish in the Sea of Galilee. And he tells Jesus all of this, but he says, you know, because you say so, Jesus, we're going to do it. And then when he does do so, the catch of fish is so great that the nets begin to break. And as they're pulling all of this fish in, he has a signal to his partners to come over with their boats to help them get this haul of fish in. Now, what could have Peter have done? Peter could have gotten out a, a piece of paper, a piece of papyrus, and begin writing down all of the ways that he's going to make money. Tremendous amount of fish. Or he could have thought about his own skill set. How could I not know where the fish are? But instead, he drops to his knees, verse 8. When Simon Peter sees this, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Verse 9 says that Peter and his companions, the reason this is going on like this is because they're astonished. They're astonished. What is so astonishing about this? It's that Peter and all of them see that there is something in Jesus that's not in them. That there's something in Jesus that's not in us, and that's something that they see, that's something that they perceive about the Messiah is astonishing. Jesus is in that boat, and Peter has gone, has moved from being comfortable with Jesus being in that boat because Jesus is just this teaching dude in the boat to being astonished and uncomfortable with Jesus being in the boat with him because he sees something in Jesus that is not in him. You know, you get the idea when you read the Gospels that Peter at times thinks that he's quite the thing. In this moment, he sees something astonishing in the Christ. Which brings us to the, um, to the next story. A short time later, this is Mark chapter 4. A short time later, and after Jesus has called the twelve to follow him, he's been teaching in some parables, a long day teaching, tells the disciples that, you know what, 
we need to get away for a little bit. Let's go to the other side, which astonishes them a little bit, shocks them really at two levels. One is, why are you telling us to leave the west side of the Sea of Galilee to go to the east side of, the, of Galilee? Because that's where the Decapolis is. That's them. That's the unclean side, the Gentile side. That's where the demons are. At a, sec- at, at a sort of a second level, they're concerned about going across the Sea of Galilee because you know all kinds of storms break out, and they break out just like that because of the, the, the Golan Heights and the way that, that the air comes down and the inversion. All of a sudden you go from crystal clear to, to these gigantic waves. But they do it because Jesus said so. And the storm comes, and Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat, and they say to him, Teacher, do you not care if we drown? I've told you about traveling from Washington, D.C. back to Texas during the holidays when I was growing up to visit family and to come back and to see the folks. And driving is the 1970s, wearing this gigantic 1968 Pontiac Bonneville, just as big as an aircraft carrier, and it's going down the road. And this is before, you know, we didn't have cassettes. We didn't, have, we didn't even have A-track in this thing. We didn't have CDs, DVDs, none of that stuff. Basically, you had AM, FM, if you could get it, traveling those roads back then. And three of us boys sitting in the back, bored out of our skulls. You can only sleep so long. You can only play so much, you know, highway bingo. So the next thing you know, we start horsing around. The next thing you know, somebody, you know, somebody's upset, somebody's arguing. But we're horsing around. We're on top of each other. We're, you know, it's a big car. There's plenty of room. It's like a playground in that back seat. And we're jumping around on each other. And finally, my mother turns to my dad and goes, JT, do you not care that these boys drive me insane? And my dad, who's been listening to Christmas music and in kind of a, this, this uh, you know, he's just in this great Christmas music, taking a Christmas music bath, you know, as he's driving... He just looks back and he says, quiet, boom. Seatbelts on, sitting up straight, everybody quiet. That's what happens in this boat. This is a gigantic storm. I mean, the waves are rocking and, and the boat is going up and down and people are getting seasick. And Jesus is in the back sleeping and they wake him and go, don't you care that we're going to drown? And Jesus just kind of gets up, looks over his shoulder and says, quiet and calm like crystal." What that story tells us is that Jesus did not live as the Son of God, as the Messiah, a life that did not have storms in it. He he didn't live a life where he didn't encounter storms, the same kind of storms that we do. The point, one of the points of that story is to remind us that Jesus is in the storm with us. That he's not separate from that. When we go through a storm, it's a storm that he's been through too. Which brings us to the third story in Matthew chapter 14. Jesus, after feeding and teaching the crowds, he wants to get away from everybody. He wants to go up into the mountains to pray for a little bit. Sends his disciples in a boat ahead of him to go across the lake. The waves are pretty fierce. The boat is being buffeted. And about dawn, as the sun is beginning to to start to come up, Jesus goes out to them, but he's not in a boat. What is he doing? He's walking on the water. He's walking on the water. And they see him, and they're absolutely terrified. Who in the world would not be terrified seeing somebody walk on water, especially when when the the, the waves are getting a little dangerous? And they think they see a ghost, but Jesus tells them not to be afraid, to take courage. 
And Peter says, if it's really Jesus, for Jesus to tell him to come out into the water. And Jesus says, come. And Peter gets out of the boat. And you know one of the most fantastic things? Peter begins to walk on the water too, until he takes his eyes off of the Christ and begins to look at the waves. And that's when he begins to sink. And that's when he begins to lose that hope. And he turns to the Christ and cries out, and Jesus reaches out and grabs him and lifts him up, and they get back in the boat. It's a fantastic story just to allow your imagination, your, your, your mind's eye to see. But one of the things that that story tells us is that, is that Jesus has something in him that's not in us. And Jesus goes through the same storms that we go through, but Jesus holds us in the storm. You know what faith is, church? Faith is not denying painful realities or pretending that these painful realities don't exist. Listen, one of the worst things that you can do in this life is to pretend that there are no storms that come in your life. Faith is not embracing some kind of a fantasy that, that life is supposed to be this way and it's all good and it's all paradise and that life is always an oasis even though everybody else is out in the desert. Faith is not a way around suffering. Faith is not this, this positive mental attitude that, that your attitude is always going to, to, uh, to determine your altitude. You know what faith is? Faith recognizes the world that we live in with its troubles and still believes that our God is Lord over the present and the future. Which means two things just about these storms. The first one is this, the worst thing is a defining thing. The worst thing is a defining thing. It's not defining in the sense that these bad things are happening to you because you are bad. It's defining of your life in this way. That you can never afford to lose the conviction of Scripture that your faith will prevail and triumph in the end over anything that's happening to you right now. That's why being astonished in the presence of God is essential. And the, and the question that you might ask yourself and think about not just for today but the rest of the week is this. Do you see what is astonishing about the Christ? Does your worship make you adequate because of, of, of the great widening, uh, bigger, uh, the, the enlarging scope of your understanding and the vision of who God is in Christ? Does your worship make you adequate for the trials ahead because you are astonished at the love of God in Christ for you? Faith never stops believing in the end of the story. It doesn't. The end, the end of Hebrews 11, a great chapter of faith as you know, the end of Hebrews 11 has a tough historical truth for us to learn. Beginning in verse 35, this guy has been talking about all of these great victories. But then he says, women received back their dead, raised to life again. That sounds great. But there were others who were tortured refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. 
They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute and persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and living in caves and in holes in the ground. And these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. What he's trying to say to a church in the first century that's really struggling with a really bad piece of road that they're going down where there are threats that are looming and the threats that are looming are going to probably turn into something with teeth. And what he's saying to them is that faith stays the course and hangs on. The faith that matters is the one that says, I'm not going any place although my heart is breaking. This last Friday night, we were over at Jill Green's house uh, with the book club reading the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis, and there's this line that we talked about where uh, evil does not want a disciple of Jesus to get to the place where they, having, in a sense, God vanished before them, still commit themselves to obedience. Because it's at that point that they're no longer in it for what they get out of God, but they're in it because of God and God alone, for the worth of God Himself. The faith that matters is the one that says, I'm not going any place, although my heart is breaking. The faith that matters is the one that burns its bridges to any other answer that is not God. Faith hangs on because of this truth, that the hard thing in your life that you are fighting through right now is not the end of the story. Do you believe that? That's how this worst thing can be a defining thing. But the worst thing is not the last thing. There are times when faith is rewarded in this lifetime. I mean, faith beats the disease. Or faith brings about success to some ministry. Or faith brings a prodigal son or daughter home. Faith beats the addiction. Faith wins. But even when those good things happen, and they do happen, they happen all the time, when those good things happen... And they do, and we should celebrate them. It's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story when those things happen. As much as it's not the end of the story when none of those things happen. And the reason is because God has planned something better. It might be a dark chapter in your life right now, but it is not the last thing. And what the Hebrew writer is saying is to hang on to the Christ, to hang on to the Messiah who astonishes you, who through worship and through and through interaction with, with, with God's Word and this ever-expanding horizon of the identity and character of God, it's the supreme value in all of the universe, that regardless of what is happening, what, what is going on, regardless of how painful it is, you hang on. Because the end is yet to come. 
we have a lot of folk come as a part of our church family nearly every day to uh, to our building, mostly on, on Sundays and Wednesdays for study and for worship. And one of the things that you just know to be true when folk come in, in numbers like this is that there's a lot of people that are going through that storm right now. And as Ben leads us in this song right now, some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. You know, one of the things that we do is ask you to write down on that little yellow card what it might be that you're going through right now that you'd like for your church family to pray for you about. But this morning, I'd like to challenge you in sort of a different way. That if you're going through a storm right now, that you just come down to the front and you come up to one of these shepherds and you don't have to tell them the details, you don't have to talk about any of the details of what's happening. You just have to say to one of these shepherds, I'm going through a storm right now. I'm going through a storm right now. And what we'll do is we will pray for you and we will stand beside you and we will walk this path with you. And what we will do in the end is to go into God's presence together and to find that astonishing thing in Christ to be the most astonishing thing we've ever experienced. If that describes you this morning, come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and as we sing. The splendor of a king.